Good morning. Thursday, August 23rd. Thomas, are you there? I am. Hey, what's happening, George? Hey. Terrific. We're having a slight technical issue. So, um, Tommy, maybe if you could just, um, I'm going to give you the mic for just a couple minutes. Uh, maybe you can update people on your thoughts. Um, talk about where you think we are right now. So, um, take it away, Tommy. Okay. Uh, let me give it a go here. Well, I'm, I'm just, um, I'm looking at the tape here uh, today, and we just are nearly breaking uh, yesterday's lows on the spies and cues, and I'm watching those just carefully as I always do. Um, I think a lot of people came in today and were hoping for a bounce. Uh, the breadth of the market is still positive; it's fading a bit. Um, one of the big things that uh, I'm, I'm just focused on right now is I I, I think that this um, the situation. Um, for Powell is dire. It's just, he's got the absolute uh, worst hand going into this weekend. Uh, inflation is going to stay elevated. It might've peaked, but it's going to stay elevated. Sticky stuff like wages, uh, food and rent and that, that kind of stuff um, is going to stay elevated. And that's not going to be easy to get to his 2% level uh, anytime soon. Uh, the market Although is you know we're seeing some real real economic problems. This uh, PMI report today was just dire. It was just just absolutely um, terrible. And uh, some of the comments, and I can read um, this. I'm just putting it in my note here. U.S. private sector firms signaled a sharper fall in business activity during August, according to the latest flash PMI data. The decrease in output was the fastest seen since May of 2020 and solid overall. But the rate of contraction also outpaced anything recorded outside the initial pandemic outbreak since the series began nearly 13 years ago. Now, this is a really negative thing, and the market uh, saw this bad news, and they immediately hit the green button and bought the market, but it's starting to fade now. And I think that's um, we're getting to this place where uh, bad is good, but now maybe bad will become actually bad. And so Powell is expected to be as hawkish as possible to reiterate what all the Fed governors tried to do to, you know, dampen the, put some, the wet blanket on the market. And Powell doesn't have a really good record at being very hawkish. He tends to go off the cuff and might say something like, well, we might moderate rate hikes going forward or something like 50 basis points that the market uh, could interpret as real positive. There's been a lot of people talking about the commitment of traders report uh, with uh, the heavy uh, short positioning right now. Yeah, that's something I'm, I'm, I'm watching a lot. We've seen a lot of covering overall in the entire market as the markets have lifted in the last month. Um, you can look back at whether it was the banks starting it off, the techs, you know, lifting higher. And it was all on better than feared type numbers. The CPI really jammed everybody in. And the Bank of America fund manager survey saw the largest or one of the largest increases in tech inflows in quite 
quite a while, and they obviously bought the mega cap names. Furthermore, the prime brokers have been saying, telling everybody that they've seen the highest uh, amount of covering uh, going back to, I think it was January or February 2021. And that was essentially when the meme stock craze peaked. Uh, you had a lot of tech peaking. And so I think the setup is it's not as bearish, uh, bold or uh, set up as short as people really think. Uh, I think that's going to be, um, I don't think we're going to have a, a huge reaction off Jackson Hole. Hey, 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 hey Tommy, sorry to interrupt you. Um, we're having some background no. issues here. Could you please accept my um, invitation to co-host? And that way you could take some questions as well. I'm trying to get the speaker on. It's, it's um Great. So your co-host now. Tommy, can you just run the room for a few minutes? We'll have him on in five minutes or so. We're just having some problems. Take it away, Tommy. Okay. I'll dance. Um, anyway, that's, um, you know, the, we've seen, you know, some really um, strong moves in the, um, in the bond market. Uh, bond, bond market's rallying today. Uh, you have uh, commodities going crazy. I, I, what the, what OPEC in Saudi Arabia said, uh, I think it was Saudi Arabia, about uh, tightening uh, supplies, that I think is real worrisome. Uh, and you're going into a hurricane season, and that could cut, you know, we have a supply issue, and that could further uh, cause some real problems for the inflation reports going forward in the next couple months. So it's a tough, tough setup. We're in weaker seasonality. I think you're going to see some interesting reports, um, companies reporting this week. Uh, starting with tomorrow, you have NVIDIA. And remember, they guided down. And I think I saw Citibank or Bank of America, their semi-analysts said that they could even miss their lowered guidance by a billion dollars. So I think it's uh, a little worry. There's some worries there. Uh, you have... Um, you know, the, the end of the meme stock rally, I think, is behind us. You have Bed Bath & Beyond and others that are that are getting crushed again today. A lot of the speculative stuff is really starting to come back down. Peloton is down a lot. Uh, I always look at, you know, some, some companies like Affirm are still up there. ARC has had a big move down. And energy stocks have rebounded. And I've I, I have a little bit of exposure on a couple um, energy names that are doing well. I think materials are starting to reemerge. Freeport, Alcoa, Nucor, X. I think those are looking okay. And um, you're seeing Staples come back down a little. They've been a nice safe haven type place. Uh, so I, I think it's right now, um, I think Powell's got a really difficult job. I wouldn't want his job. And he needs the market to come down to tighten financial conditions. And I speak to Julian Brigden a couple times a week, and he's thinking that the Fed is just going to keep going and going and going. And when they get to their level that they're comfortable, they're, gonna, they're just going to pause and not do anything. So people thinking they're going to reverse course, I think that's, um, that's, that's hopeful thinking at this point. All right, do we have... Um, do we have it? George? We're good. We're good. Say, okay. hey, thanks oh. for dancing, Tommy. You'll have to fill me in later on what you actually said. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, this, is not, this has not been my finest era between messing up the music intro and the te- technology problems we had. Um, I apologize for that. Anyway, th- thanks, Tommy. Um, I read your stuff every day, so I kind of know what you're thinking anyway. Um, so that's all good. Okay, so and now for something different. Um, we are very uh, pleased to have with us um, a, an old Japanese uh, hand, an expert, a friend of mine who I've known for oh my gosh, over three decades now, um, who's probably forgotten more about the Japanese uh, market than um, all of us uh, put together in this room. And I think it'd be very, and so you know, we, 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 we speak of, one speaks of the, um, the lost decade for Japan. I think it's rather been more a case of three decades. Um, any event, I've known uh, Alexander going back over three decades, um, from the time when he was uh, the Japanese equity strategist for uh, Morgan Stanley. Um, he's worn, he's had a number of different um, uh, positions in his career. Um, I believe he started his career at uh, Daiichi Securities. And Alex, I'm not even sure if Daiichi's still around. You'll fill me in on that. Um, later went on to work at uh, Nico Solomon Smith Barney. Um, worked at a REIT firm, and now um, is with Milestone um, Asset Management. So there's been a, a, a dearth of Japanese hands uh, on Twitter because there aren't too many left around. Um, there aren't too many survivors. And so I'm really grateful that uh, Alexander has uh, come to spend some time with us to talk about Japan, um, the opportunities he sees there, world markets. He's a study student of financial history. Uh, and lessons for America. So, uh, Alexander, um, it's great that you're here. If you unmute yourself, please, um, and we can get this party started. Alexander, how are you, my friend? Good, thank Good. you. Good, excellent. So just speak up a touch so everyone can hear you. So um, you. maybe we could just start. Uh, people don't know you. Uh, you've been in hiding. Um, you know, Japan <laughs> has exactly the flavor of the day in, 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 in recent decades. Maybe just talk a little bit about your career and what you're doing now. How'd you get started in this industry and, and, and various, you know, stops along the way? What have you learned and, and what are you doing now? Well, uh, first of all, it's very kind of you to have me on your space. I feel very privileged. Um, as far as my uh, getting started in the business is concerned, I um, I studied Latin and Greek and uh, ancient literature and ancient history at university. Um, and in the, in the English manner, I presumed to become a stockbroker. And at the time um, when I left, uh, the um, Japanese brokers were hiring heavily in London um, because, of course, the bubble was just getting underway in Japan. Um, so for me, my first trip to Japan um, first exposure to Japan was bubble-era Japan, which, as you can imagine, and as, a, as an impressionable young stockbroker, was, was quite, quite, quite a lot of fun. Hey, hey, um, hey, Alexander, if I might add, what, what year was that, Alexander? 1985. Ah, <laughs> see, you so still had I, a... I belong, yeah. I belong to the, te- technically to the Dinosaurs Club, um, who, who in Japan dated to those who were active in the market before March of 1986, which is the official date of the beginning of the bubble. So, so, you, so you were there for the run. You weren't one of these um, 
who came in right at the top in 89. So you, you, you had a taste of what a, a good bona fide bull market was like, correct? That's right. And, and I was a real estate analyst in the middle of the biggest real estate bubble up to that time. So um, it was doubly a lot of fun for, for me. So, 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 so you were sort of, if Kathy Wood were alive in 1985 and she had a Japanese cousin, that, that was you. Is that, is that, that was right? Me. That was okay, me. there you go. Okay, go on. <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh, although I, I, I think I perhaps wasn't, wasn't quite as impressionable as all that. <laughs> all <Yeah. right. laughs> a little bit of British understatement there. Go ahead, Alexander. Keep, keep the, going. Yeah. So um, I joined Morgan Stanley in 1991 and uh, initially as a real estate analyst again, uh, but then I was asked by Barton Biggs to, uh, to do equity strategy because Barton believed, I think probably rightly, that in Asia, uh, real estate is the center of the market. Um, and uh, by this time, of course, the Japanese bubble had burst, but nobody had noticed um, and uh, life was going on in the same bubbly manner as before, but without the economic support that the bubble gave. Um, and th that all came crashing to a halt in 1986, I'm sorry, uh, when it was finally realized as the economy cratered that something new and unusual was happening, rather than just the cyclical downturn and cyclical recovery. Uh, and uh, then I... Um, I spent some time doing equity strategy at, uh, at Nikkei City um, and then joined a buy-side firm where we specialised in J-REITs, going back to my real estate roots. Um, and then uh, I went back to Morgan Stanley um, and then um, came to Milestone, which is my firm. I own it. Um, and we do uh, small cap value domestically orientated Japan, uh, which um, is, is good for us because there aren't very many other people who do it, so there's less competition. Um, we always like competing in uncompetitive markets. So, so we've compounded uh, nicely, nearly 10% for 10, to 10 and a half years. Really? That's, that, that, I had no idea. That's, that's quite an accomplishment for a market. Which Without been... leverage. Wow. So, um, so, Alexander, let me ask you, um, I mean, you've been through a proper bear market. Um, so even in, in such a poor market, you've been able to hash out pretty decent returns. Is that, have the markets become much less efficient in Japan um, over the last few decades? I, I would say so, yes. And I, I, would, I would blame the increase in index activity. And there, there are international reasons for that. Um, it's a global trend, um, but there are domestic or more Japanese reasons for it. And going back to your introduction, the number of Japanese specialists is very, very small. So it's much easier for investors than it is to deal in individual stocks. And as a result, price discovery in individual stocks is, has come to take much more time than would normally be the case. So, Alex, you know what might be helpful for many? You've been through a proper bear market as have I, um, we first got to know each other uh, around things Japanese. And I look at my Rolodex, or I guess you'd call it a Microsoft contacts list. <laughs> the number of folks that are left, the survivors as they were, few and far between, 
can you just explain a little bit, um, you know, how the markets have changed in terms of activity, in terms of uh, people doing serious research, in terms of trading volume, in terms of maybe the attitude of the typical Japanese investor, Mrs. Watanabe, um, because, you know, we, 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 we've been in this, I think we're in a bear market right now in the U.S., but we've been in this 40-year upswing in the States, and, and, and a proper bear market only exists in the memories of some of the, the ancients at this point. And so maybe give us a little bit of a taste of what it's been like the last 30 years being in the Japanese equity market. So you just reminded me of a, a conversation I had with Bob Metzler, who used to run the equity division at Morgan Stanley. Um, he was standing in the in a bar just across the road from the Carnegie Hall, waiting for a concert to begin. When he uh, he walked up and said hello, because we'd been in the meeting together earlier in the day, and uh, we were talking about the markets, which I think it was 1998, were in the doldrums at the time. And he said, let me tell you, I've been through a bear market, and a bear market is when you're waiting for the tape to move at all. <laughs> yeah. <Which> well... <laughs> It has the ring of truth on it. Um, as far as Mrs. Watanabe is concerned, Mrs. Watanabe never really traded stocks and doesn't still trade stocks. Um, the stocks are considered slightly déclassé. I was having a conversation with a Japanese friend the other day who'd had to apologise to his prospective father-in-law for being a stockbroker. Um, and I know people who weren't prevented from marrying the girls of their choice. <laughs> they were stockbrokers. So, Are you serious? Uh, I'm totally serious. It's right. it's considered a very class A profession. You're talking about in Japan. In Japan, yeah. In Japan, got it. Okay. Um, so Mrs. Mrs. Watanabe doesn't really trade stocks. Um, they have small positions and they treat it like gambling. Um, Mrs. Watanabe has a, a, a brother though. Um, who runs a small business, and he trades a lot, and he trades both individual stocks and uh, derivative structures. And it's very interesting to examine the derivative structures. They um, they're usually capital guaranteed in one way or another. Um, whether anything's ever, ever actually capital guaranteed, of course, is a different question. These capital guaranteed notes with knockout options. Um, are all struck around an 8% return. So the risk-free, in inverted commas, return is 8%. So we, we use 8% as the cost of equity, the actual cost of equity for Japanese equities, um, based on, on that real-world real observation, rather than on pure theory. Um, and we find that in our stocks, it's Miss, Mr. Watanabe and Mrs. Watanabe's brother, who is the price maker. Um, and finally, at the end of the, the run, um, the Japanese institution becomes involved. The Japanese institution, going back to the tape not moving, um, the Japanese institution doesn't trade stocks. It sits, it sits on a small position in stocks relative to its total asset base. Um, and it... Uh, it turns it over roughly one third of the pace to one quarter of the pace 
um, of the foreign investor. So all of the trading activity is Mr. Watanabe and the foreign investor. And the foreign investor has very strong biases. They're only interested in growth. They're only interested in large capitalization shares. And put crudely, they're rather more interested in companies that they've heard of than companies that they've not heard of. Alexander, so very... <laughs> I have to interrupt you. I'm sorry. Listen to that description. That could aptly describe what passes for an acceptable or exciting investment idea in the U.S. market nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And there's, there's an added twist in recent years. The, uh, the regional center for most financial institutions has become Hong Kong. Um, and, of course, Hong Kong hires from the Hong Kong talent pool, which is almost exclusively non-Japanese. So the companies that provide English language information um, are at a serious advantage compared with those that don't. And we tend to fish in the water where there's no English language information. Alexander, just fill in a second. When you're talking about this 80% quote-unquote guaranteed return, are, are you talking about these are returns that are on offer present day or you're going back a couple of decades? Pre present day. So, 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 so 8% this seems to be a magic number. So, 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 mm. Mr. So, Mr. so Mrs. Watanabe's brother goes and buys this note with an 8% guaranteed return. And how are those notes actually being being structured? Are they selling puts against against the principal? What, what are they doing exactly to generate? Them? Yes, they're, they're selling puts with knockout op, knockouts attached to them. So that the worst case in inverted commas that can happen is that you get your money back plus eight percent. The worst case, okay. That's right. Indeed. Okay. Well, it, it tells you if if you can if you've got a brokerage industry that's dedicated to structuring these sorts of notes. And it's 8% at an annualized rate. So um, the shorter term notes, uh, the shorter term the notes, the lower the actual payout. But the, um, the, if you've got an industry that's dedicated to structuring this sort of paper, um, it's not entirely surprising that you don't have an industry that spends a great deal of time on equity research. Got it. But So just walk me through, or for everyone in the room, Let's just go through the mechanics of one of these notes. So Miss, Mrs. Watanabe's brother buys one of these notes. Some moribund financial Japanese intermediary just want, needs to generate the income. They sell the out-of-the-money puts. So explain what happens to us when the markets go down. How does that work? The, there's a, a second option um, that uh, knocks out a, a certain level of price change. Um, and the, the note is then cancelled. Uh, all, all the other contracts are then cancelled. Um, and you get your, your principal plus a small return. Right. But who's on, the, who's on the other side of that, though? The institution had to find Institu some Institutional asset managers. Right. kind of wonder how that model might work here in the U.S. That's a quote-unquote interesting idea, as they say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Compared to, say, 20, 30 years ago, so when you, the, the small caps you're involved in, um, it almost sounds like, go, harkens back to my early years when I started my career, we actually could go speak to a company, uh, you weren't plagued by Reg FD, and you could actually learn something. Uh, that's, I think, nowadays called NPI, and you know they've been properly or improperly vetted by the lawyers and accountants about what to say, what not to say. So I guess the question I ask is, is, is it possible to actually 
gain an edge, as it were, uh, by going and speaking to companies? Um, do you find the, um, the, 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 the discourse, the interaction with the management useful? Very useful. We, we do over, we've got a group of five in the management team, and we do over 1,000 company contacts a year. So there is no research on the stuff that we look at. So we've got to do it all by ourselves. Uh, and the only way of doing it is to talk to the management. Um, and the management tell us that we ask different questions from the um, average person who visits them because we're not interested in quarterly results. Well, we, we obviously are interested in quarterly results. We're not centrally concerned with quarterly profit forecasts. We're not trying to game the announcement cycle. Um, we're interested in forming a picture of the company's competitive position, whether it's sustainable or not, and it's competitive and it's sustainable earnings power over an indefinite medium term. Alexander, um, quaint old notion that is. A little bit of sorrow. Well, that, 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 that's right. But the companies quite like it, funnily enough. <laughs> Alexander, could you just, uh, for everyone in the room, because they might be, as, I'm sure they're not as familiar as you are with uh, the Japanese market, how often do Japanese companies report their earnings? Well, nowadays, quarterly. That's all changed since you, you, you and I were kicking off in the 80s. Yeah, it used to be semi-annual, and so you could get well into the six-month period, and then we would always be speculating about an upper revision or down revision to come. Uh, so uh, That's right, that's... but I, I think Mr. Mr. Watanabe is not tuned into quarterly earnings releases because the semi-annual release releases have far more stock market impact than do the um, the quarterly numbers. I see. So, um, and, and then you say there are a few who are actually uh, visiting companies or the questions they're getting are different from yours. So you find this affords you a pretty nice nice advantage in terms of being able to add value. That's, right. That's excellent. And, and we, also, we, to give credit where it's due um the totality of the imp of the improvement in corporate governance that we've seen as a result of corporate governance regulation in japan is that we get a higher class of director um to come and see us um than we used to so whereas we used to just get an ordinary managing director we now get a senior managing director or even the second in command of the firm or even the president Wow. So they're, 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 there's a small industry telling us that Japanese corporate governance has become Anglo-Saxon. Um, it, it, it hasn't, it, but it's, it's certainly more polite than it was. Yeah, with listening to you speak, it's taken me down memory lane. So let's talk about corporate governance and let's talk about the concept of shareholder value. I remember in my early formative years in the 80s, um, the idea of you know, maximizing shareholder value did not exist in the Japanese vocabulary. Um, that certainly seem, is, is, have they taken that on board? Have they been infected by that bug or do they have a healthy regard for that? And they just now re re regard shareholders as another constituency to be dealt with. Like I, I do recall, I mean, this is alien to Anglo-Saxon investors, mm -hmm. but the idea that the uh, employees or the customers or the suppliers of the company might be more important rank ahead of the shareholders. So how has that attitude changed over the last few decades? Well, um, it hasn't actually. Okay. Um, the, uh, to put it in perspective, a very good friend of mine is a director, uh, going to be, um, he's a partner actually, uh, one of the very large international consulting firms. 
Uh, he's Japanese but educated in Britain. One of his jobs is to hold remedial classes for newly promoted managing directors of large Japanese companies to introduce them to such exotic concepts as cost of equity. Um, and so on. That's this year, last year. So the, the conce conceptual basis for a sophisticated understanding of shareholder value is completely lacking um, in Japanese corporate circles. Um, and that, that that's not going to change. So it's so, so, not going to change quickly. So, so how often do Japanese companies actually care about their or, or, or is it the real company? They're the cost of they just they yeah. Wow. Well, they they our companies have to get. They, there's a big difference between big companies and little companies, and every every time that we visit a big company, we're horrified as to what we find. Um. But small small companies are in a different position. So big big companies are um, capable of borrowing at an undifferentiated rate, um, more or less limitless amounts of money, irrespective of their condition of their balance sheet, because they're socially important. If you're a small company, by contrast, you're on getting the other end of that particular stick, um, and. You can't borrow when you need to borrow because all the credit allocation has been taken up by improbably um, stretched big companies. So does that, does that therefore imply that with lar lar made larger companies, there's been a tendency a greater incidence of misallocation of resources? Yes. Right. And, uh, to put it in perspective, a friend, a friend of mine bought a, an agricultural setup in northern Japan for 600 million yen. Three years previously, it had cost 6 billion yen to a large beer company to build. And he was marveling in that conversation at the ability of the big company to waste 6 billion yen on a farm. <laughs> well, I don't think that's any worse than we're wasting tens of billions on uh, food delivery service and dating apps. I, I, found, I found one today. I was doing some work on a smaller company. Yeah. I found... Uh, a company that had just disposed of an Italian vineyard in Lecce, of all places, um, which is, is not, not, not renowned for high-quality wines. I hope that's not being unfair to Lecce. But uh, they'd had it for three years, and it had recorded precisely zero revenue. <laughs> oh, my. So you can talk about um, things other than just the Japanese market per se. So, so let's just one last question on Japan. We're going to move on to the U S China and the world. Um, so it sounds like Japan's rich for generating alpha. Um, and you've had quite a good go of it. Um, do you have any sort of big picture view on the Japanese market, the economy, the yen? I mean, I could ask you, for instance, your thoughts, mm -hmm. on the yen is, you know, the, the, the speed with which it's declined the last few months has been absolutely breathtaking. Um, maybe, I don't know, speak about the, whatever's top of mind for you, the yen, demographics, rival mm. et cetera, et cetera. What's sort of top of mind for you that maybe the sort of average investor in the States wouldn't fully be appreciative uh, about Japan? Because Japan, you know, is really kind of taking a back seat. Now, now when people think about Asia, they think pretty much it's pretty much China, you know, China 24-7 all the time. So what sort of top of mind thoughts do you have about, uh, about Japan more broadly? Um, well, first of all, it's, important to be clear on how we got to where we are rather than to accept the authorized version the 
authorized version is that Japan tried very hard to recover and failed and tried very hard by mobilizing fiscal policy and monetary policy. The reality is that Japan tried to recover between 1991 and 1996 and recovered fully. Um, 1996, Japan was the fastest growing economy in the G7. Um, it was only in 1996 going into 1997 when fiscal retrenchment uh, was put into uh, pr progress that things started to get messy. Um, so there are, the first period, we, we, we won't talk about it, but the first period is up to 1996. The second period is from 1996 to 2013. And what happened in 2013? Um, the yen had a maxi devaluation um, presided over by late, late former Prime Minister Abe. Uh, whether he was actually, uh, or the Bank of Japan was actually in control of the yen at that time, I, I don't know. But um, they either got lucky or something um, happened somewhere else that precipitate, precipitated yen depreciation on a scale sufficient to bring the yen to a position whereby it was undervalued on a purchasing power, power value basis. Um, and this is this is transformatory, because beginning with the Plaza Agreement in 1985, uh, for 30 years, uh, the yen was more than 10% overvalued relative to the purchasing power parity estimate produced by the OECD um, for, for the sub subsequent period. Since 2013, the yen has been undervalued marginally until recently, but now quite nicely 20% undervalued um, compared with the same OECD purchasing power estimate. So the story of the bubble is a both a domestic story and an international story. And the international story element of it is usually underplayed, um, under-recognized. It was impossible for Japan to recover properly in the immediate post-bubble period because it was competing with one hand tied behind its back um, and in the form of an overvalued, seriously overvalued currency, which it was felt they couldn't change because America had strategically chosen, they felt, to uh, have a, a stronger yen rather than a weaker yen. So that all changed in 2013 and we're still dealing with the consequences. And the current yen depreciation, I personally cannot see as a bad thing. Um, it, it seems to me actually rather lucky for Japan again that the yen is getting weaker rather than stronger. It doesn't mean it'll stay weaker because so much of the power behind the yen's depreciation is the view of the Federal Reserve going to tighten and the Bank of Japan not going to tighten. But if they do nothing and the yen stays re re relatively quiet, in the 130s, um, that will be a massive tailwind for Japan. It's interesting that our companies do not worry about the weaker currency. Um, they're not exporters, but they don't worry about the weaker currency. Uh, and I think that's correct. So why is there so much noise about uh, weaker currency being a threat or a, a danger? Well, it's because big companies, as usual, have got themselves the, the wrong way round. They took the period between 1985 and 2013 as being a perpetual settlement um, and it, it therefore expanded their 
production in China and Southeast Asia and so on. And now they're doubly wrong. First of all, they're wrong in having too much in China at a time when strategically it's become impossible for non-Chinese companies to, have too to hold too much in China. And the second is that they have too much outside Japan in Toto, uh, when it's actually Japan that is the competitive base for manufacturing these days. To give you one example, I'm sitting in rural France at the moment. The minimum wage in France is 1,450 yen in yen equivalent terms. For 1,450 yen, you can get a four-year university graduate in Tokyo. There's something wrong with that picture. That is staggering. I saw a similar uh, graph uh, a few weeks ago. It showed, you know, you'll know the chart I'm talking about. It showed um, comparing U.S. wages to a typical, I think, U.S. per capita income with uh, Japan. And they were sort of running neck and neck. They weren't too far apart. But then starting a number of years ago, maybe it was around 2013 or probably a little bit thereafter, been an enormous divergence. Um, mm. And so... So let me ask you, what is the downside of the weakness of the... George, you there? Sorry, can you hear me? Hello? George, back up a little and... Um, Thomas. Get away from your microwave. Yeah, 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 Thomas, can you hear me? Yeah, sorry about that. I was just saying, I was just saying that for years, um, it was only a few years ago, as Alex was saying, there's been a huge divergence in the competitiveness. If you look at average per capita income and say, I, I saw a chart comparing the U.S. to Japan... Um, it's, they've, it's been really, they've gone separate ways in the last few years. So Alexander, what has this done? Um, how's this impacted the Japanese economy? I mean, obviously they become much more competitive with the weaker yen. Uh, but you have, you have the case of uh, China, uh, which is not necessarily competing in the same markets as, as, as Japan, although that might be changing. So what has this done in terms of export competitiveness? Was it done to import prices? What impact, broadly speaking, has the weaker yen had on the Japanese economy? At the moment, a relatively mild impact. Um, cumulatively, that will grow over time. But the, uh, um, the, the important thing on import prices is to be aware of what Japan imports and what Japan doesn't import um, in, in extraordinarily crude terms. Uh, Japan imports energy and raw materials, food, um, and German cars. Um, and apart from that, it doesn't really import finished goods. Um, it exports finished goods. So to the extent that prices of um, finished goods are going up around the world, um, and the yen is going down, they're getting a double whammy on the plus side. Um, and they're not really exposed to anything beyond food and energy on the input side. Um, the issue for Japan over the long run is not the yen rate. It's the level of investment. There's, um, uh, this is controversial among economists. But um, the, my, my diagnosis of the problem in Japan is a lack of net investment. So we've gone 20 years, roughly speaking, where in a situation where um, the volume of new capital investment is matched by or exceeded by the volume of annual depreciation, or in 
pure economic terms, capital consumption. So that the the value of the capital deployed at the hands of the Japanese worker is no higher now than it was 10 or 15 years ago. And that is an extraordinarily unusual situation. Um, there are a lot of reasons for it, which we can go into if you wish, but um, it's, uh, it's a very, very unusual state of affairs where a capitalist economy stops being capitalist because capitalists are not deploying capital into new, new ventures at a rate that's superior to the erosion of the value of existing capital. So what one's got to hope, and what, this did not happen last time, the, the end depreciated in 2013 and 2014, is that improved business confidence will translate into improved net investment. I'm less interested in gross investment and more interested in net investment, because that's, that gives you a measure of the change in the capital at the fingertips of Japanese workers. So um, for me, that's the, the crit critical point. Uh, the jury is out. Um, I'd like to think that uh, we're going to see um, more capex this time and more, therefore, net investment. Uh, but it's too early to make a conclusive judgment. Right. And, what, and what, what's happening to the Japanese economy now, given all the all the crosswinds? What's happening to the Japanese economy in respect of the impact of rising energy prices, um, and also? You know, generally speaking, the global economic cycle is turning down. I remember back in the day, it was pretty simple when I was running a global fund. When the world economy was expanding, you go overweight Japan. When it was declining, you go underweight Japan because of the high degree of operating leverage in the Japanese mm -hmm. stock market. So the impact mm -hmm. of energy, the slowing economic economy, and, and, and also lastly, and I'll stop, um, the Japanese attitude towards China and the threats and opportunities that China presents. You, you, you're making me feel... Uh, quite nostalgic, talking about <laughs> buying buying Japan when the global cycle turns up. The, um, the there's one rule that has has an unbroken track record since 1970, and that is that the global cycle peaks when the Bank of Japan raises interest rates. Uh, it's it's not because the Bank of Japan has raised interest rates that the global cycle peaks. It's because the global cycle has been slowing for some time. And it's, it takes that amount of time for the Bank of Japan to getting around to noticing that it is more than that amount of time to getting around to noticing that it has slowed. So it's all, always making its uh, assumptions about tightening into a slowdown. And that's worked every time, every global cycle change since 1970. Right. Um, so the, the current state of play at the moment is standoff between positives and negatives got it um the uh consumer is coming back all the data tends to suggest that the consumer is coming back after a period of a of mandated manda mandated austerity because of covid lock non-lockdowns it's a very interesting comment on japanese society that uh japan didn't have a european style lockdown there was no mandatory element in the lockdown but everybody complied anyway. Um, uh, one has to believe that treating the, the population like adults will over the long run be a better choice than treating them like children, as was the case in the United Kingdom. Uh, the, um, as far as China is concerned, different people have different views. 
um, the uh, when China um, decided it wanted the Senkaku Islands, which, by the way, is the same as saying it wants the U.S. Marine bases on Okinawa. Um, the there was a visible or palpable uh, free song that ran through the population. Um, and one heard people talking about it in outraged terms in bars and restaurants in a manner which one had never heard before. So there is no appetite in the, in the, among the ordinary Japanese to be turned into a vassal state of China. Um, the, then the choice has become more, more difficult. Um, they've, got to, uh, they've got the US alliance. But there's uh, always a question as to whether the U.S. would actually come to Japan's help if China got very ambitious. Um, and that uh, is an open question that, that nobody can answer, neither America nor, 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 nor Japan. And will continue to have repercussions domestically because it opens up space for people to say, oh, well, the U.S. alliance isn't actually very much use. We should make our peace with China and accept their demands. Um, the biggest group that's in favor of knuckling under to China um, is big business. Uh, because as I mentioned earlier on, it's overexpanded into China. Um, and uh, um, therefore, it, it, it has a business interest in not seeing relationships deteriorate between Japan and China. But my, my, my guess is that Japan will continue to grow its military budget um, the next big hurdle is changing the constitution to allow for the legal definition and uh, legal redefinition and uh, legalization, in fact, of the existence of the self-defense forces. Um, but it'll be basically the navy that gets the navy and the air force that gets the the money. I don't think we're going to see Japanese army swaggering around Asia anytime soon. Right. So let's go in a slightly different direction. And then I'd like to open up the questions from the audience. Again, we're um, speaking, our, our, our guest today is Alexander Kinmont. Um, if you have any j things, questions about things Japan, he's your guy. Um, he's one of the smartest um, uh, observers with a longstanding tenure on the Japanese equity market dating way back to the 80s. So I have one question for you, Alexander, and then we'll go to uh, Tom Thornton who has a question. Um, Alexander, what lessons, um, as, as you, you're not investing in the U.S. market, but you're global, you're an observer of the global scene. What lessons would you draw from the Japanese experience about what we're seeing in the U.S. market and, and you know, just your thoughts on the U.S. market? Uh, and, and, I mean, to me, it's just, you know, I've, I've spoken ad nauseum in these spaces about what an extraordinary bubble we're going through. And just as, as, from where you sit, how does the U.S. look to you, to just reflecting on the decades you've been in markets, particularly in the Japanese market? Mm. Well, it, 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 from a distance, it looks like a bubble. Um, and uh, uh, it's got the same... Um, there, there was a magazine called Newton, which is, amazingly enough still exists. But at the top of the bubble, it had... Um, a series about new Japanese technology, including such marvels as uh, rockets to take one to um, cities, space cities, um, build, building cities down one kilometer into the earth, and so on. Um, stuff that um, one 
would assume that Kathy Wood would be greatly enamored of if it, if it was offered today as a type of innovation. Um, so the whole structure of belief around the uh, in respect of the con concept of innovation and its uh, limitless beneficence uh, strikes me as being emblematic of bubble thinking. Um, valuation is is absurd in a number of cases. We used to be laughed at as Japanese specialists when we talked about companies being cheap at 26 times earnings. I can't see why nobody's laughing now uh, when the rank and file of American companies is 26 times earnings. And it's even worse when you compare price to tangible book. Um, a large number of American companies appear not to have any tangible book. Value. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Bad joke attempt coming here. Tangible book? I, I, I don't think that phrase exists in the investment lexicon these days in the U.S. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a connoisseur of antique phraseology. <laughs> so, so Al Alexander, you spoke the other day, and we had a conversation about, um, and you, you referenced it again a few minutes ago, about the mistake Japan made of trying to tighten both fiscal and monetary policy at the same time. So maybe you could go in that direction. How is that relevant to what you see in the, going on in the U.S. right now? Well, the... Uh... There was a massive loosening of fiscal policy um, because of coronavirus, of course. Um, and now there appears to be a shift in direction. And some data shows a contracting fiscal stance, uh, the totality of the federal reserve, sorry, the federal government, state gov government level taken as a whole. Um, the first point to make is how fantastically unusual is fiscal contraction in the United States. In the post-war period, there's a, a minute or two of fiscal retraction, uh, contraction after the um, Korean War. There's a minute or two in the 1960s, and there's a minute or two um, in under Mr. Cl President Clinton. But basically, fiscal policy is always loose in the United States. So perhaps people have come to the conclusion that it will remain loose. I just wonder whether you can have a loose policy politically loose on the scale that we saw from um, coronavirus. And the lesson of Japan is that you can either have monetary tightening or fiscal tightening, but you cannot have both without a recession. Um, the fiscal tightening of 1996 going into 1998 coincided with the Asian financial crisis, and therefore it's easy to blame the Asian financial crisis, but the underlying causes of that deep recession, where a 2% of GDP fiscal retrenchment coupled with a tightening of monetary policy. The sad fact is, though, that coming at it from a different angle, you can't have a normalization of interest rates unless you have fiscal looseness. So you're trapped in a position where there are no good choices. Um, uh, but one thing we can guarantee is that trying to tighten fiscal policy and sorry trying to tighten monetary policy into a fiscal tightening is the recipe for disaster japan proves that in spades on three occasions alexander just to pour gas on your fire and i want to go to tommy thorne in one second um it's interesting to think about how japan is similar to the us but it's also equally interesting to think about how it's different and one of the things that i, I always reminded of um going back to the cobs of my, of my mind 
um, is that you know Japan has always been a, was 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 the world's largest credit nation. I've lost track. It's not China or Japan. Mm. Whereas the U.S. is the world's. You know, we've got a tremendous amount of debt here, and so the difference in the flexibility you have, as opposed to when you're bar, you know, um, with your creditor debtor nation, profound implications. I mean, you know, people always marvel at how the Japanese the JGBs were able to be sustained at such incredibly low yields. Well, as I recall, and you'll correct me. Um, it's because so much of JGB's historically been bought by Mrs. Watanabe, whether it's for fear of lack of a social safety net or whatever, Japanese could fund themselves um, from their own domestic population, where that's not necessarily the case in the U.S. And so, you know, foreign has been pulling back on buying U.S. treasuries in recent years, being replaced perhaps by the Fed, although that's now going out the window now because we're going from QE to QT. So when you think about the degrees of freedom, uh, that's more complicated here in the U.S. I mean, what, 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 how does that inform you? What, 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 what lesson do you take from that? I, I think one's got to be extremely careful about creditor-debtor com comparisons at an international level because it isn't the case that being a creditor per se confers greater freedom on the creditor nation. Um, put in different terms, Japan has got the, the U.S. treasuries and it's got the jobs but America has generated the demand. Um, and therefore, if Japan ceases to accumulate for whatever reason, U.S. treasuries, it will not have any jobs and it won't, it won't have any treasuries either. Right. Um, it's, it's not wholly free to stop doing what it's been doing. It has to be very gentle in any moves, moves that, it, that it makes. The other point to make is that the external imbalance that shows itself as a uh, an accumulation of external debt is the mirror of a domestic imbalance. There must be some department of the U.S. economy that's consistently running a, a financial deficit in order for there to be a financial deficit outside um, America. And likewise, there must be some imbalance in the Japanese economy, within the Japanese economy, which is causing the accumulation of foreign assets in preference to domestic assets. Uh, and that brings me back to the point I was making about net investment. It's because Japanese companies are not investing their cash flows that, they, that the economy is accumulating cre credit claims on the rest of the world. It's because in America, the consumer is spending more than their cash flow and the, in, in, the business sector also spending more than its cash flow, that there is a, an, an international deficit. So it's um, t to me, it's it's not debt isn't frightening to, to, to me. What, what's what's frightening is policymakers, um, and they they can upset the apple cart very quickly. Well said, Mr. Thornton. Uh, I yield the floor to you. And by the way, anyone has a question for um, Alexander uh, about things Japan or otherwise? I see we've got a lot of. Uh, Friendly faces, smart cookies in the room. Please raise your hand. Don't be shy. Tommy, floor is yours. Alexander, uh, this has uh, been a, a very uh, fascinating and informative conversation. Um, you know, the history that uh, the, the knowledge that you have uh, going back with the, these markets and economy uh, with Japan is just astounding. Uh, there's just something uh, I've heard through some of my clients. Uh, I have some macro uh, hedge fund managers and one very smart one said to me that he is hearing uh, within the 
population in Japan, the, the people are starting to become very upset about the weaker yen. And, and obviously, uh, for a good reason. Um, and the uh, Bank of Japan has not uh, followed in suit and has uh, followed other central banks and tightened conditions. And that's they stand out, obviously. Uh, do you do you see this as a? Uh, I mean, as you said mentioned earlier that you thought the weakening yen was was very favorable. Uh, do you see this um, happening? Have you heard of the consumers and the population being upset about the weakening yen? And do you think that um, there is political backlash that could happen? And I'll, I'll just leave it there. Thanks. Yeah. Um, no, I take a different view. The unhappiness that's expressed with yen depreciation is the unhappiness of the upper middle management and uh, management classes, not that of the ordinary person. The ordinary person is more interested in having having a job, um, and there is a better chance of having a job uh, under a weaker yen than there is under a stronger yen. And I think we've taken 30 years to prove that that's the case. Um, the uh, The... Policymakers feel themselves underdressed, almost naked, if they don't have an interest rate. Um, and uh, they also get worried about not being invited to the top class of cocktail party if they're out of sync with their peers. So the, um, for me, a lot of this is elite posturing, um, and it's the voice of the rentier. Um, the loser from yen depreciation is the person who owns yen assets, um, not the person who's looking for a job paid in yen. Uh, and uh, I, I think the degree to which the population is unhappy with yen depreciation is easily overplayed. Right. Um, speaking of yen depreciation and inflation, it's probably curious for many of us here in the States, given the enormous increase in food and energy and the precipitous decline in the value of the yen. Okay, inflation's picked up, but I see here where I think CPI is, what is it, 2.8% now for the third consecutive mm -hmm. month or something like that. Um, what does that mean for Japanese policymakers? How long do you think they're likely to carry on with this type of policy? And why hasn't inflation been much higher in Japan given the factors I just mentioned? The simple reason why the inflation hasn't come back in Japan is, uh, for, for, is that um, there's a massive amount of excess capacity. Um, the, there's a game that's played by policymakers using the output gap as some sort of indicator of inflationary pressure. When uh, it was a, a research organization in America, and the Brookings Institute examined Japanese output gap estimates, it found them ranging from 10 to 0 percent, minus 10 to 0 percent. So they're all made up numbers. Um, we can go into problem with using the trend to extrapolate, but um, if, you, if you wish. But that's what, basically what everybody's doing. They're drawing a straight line and then a deviation from a straight line. The, the problem is that the straight line has no intellectual co content. Um, and going back to what I was saying about net investment, 
the pr problem is that uh, demand is depressed because there is a lack of investment going on in the economy. Um, and the, but the one's got to have some understanding of the position of Japanese companies, because if you total up the total volume of of man hours that are available to be worked without going over legal limitations on working hours, um, and compare that with the actual number of hours worked, the actual number of hours worked is 15% less than the total potential number of hours worked in the worker bull in the economy. Um, so there's a massive slack in the economy, and that's why um, prices are not going up yet. Alexander, it's interesting to hear, as I hear you utter those words, I, I, I just can't help get on my mind the flip side of what's going on here in the U.S. I mean, again, you don't, I know you're not, you don't purport to be the second coming of Barton Biggs, but you are rather switched on and do have a view. And so from where you sit, and okay, let's say, you know, your forehand, to use tennis analogies, things Japan, but as you think about the U.S., I mean, what's wrong with the notion that the U.S. is in exactly the opposite position? It's it's too much demand. It's too much consumption. It's not enough investment. How would you respond to that? I think there's a very strong case to be made that that is the case. The uh, the uh, um, the I think it's also important to recognize that inflation is uh, has a backhand and a forehand the forehand is demand of course um but the backhand is supply um and the uh uh the great retirement you only live once and all of this sort of thing anecdotally seems to add up to a massive retirement of labor from the us economy um just at the point that demand is growing stronger Right. So an inflationary recipe. Right. Uh, it's worth looking back over inflationary episodes in the past. Um, and for instance, remembering the 1970s and the prevalence of strikes, which were a form of labor withdrawal as well. So uh, for, for me, inflation is as much or if, perhaps more about the supply side for labor than it is about the demand side of the economy. But the picture in America is not a good one as far as inflation is concerned. Duly noted. Let's go to a couple of questions from our audience. Uh, I want to go to Phoenix Fire, and then we're going to go to SRS Rocco. Phoenix Fire, the floor is yours. Alex, this is Gene. I met you when Abenomics started about a decade ago. I uh, right. hope, hope you're well. Um, my, you. my question is, uh, what causes Kuroda's terms coming up next year? Does BOJ ever change its course here? And the second question I have is, how does BOJ ever unwind their equity holdings and their asset purchases, or is this just going to be a permanent part? Of Thank you. T taking the second question first, I, th I think all of the gossip suggests that the preferred option will be to put it into some sort of national savings plan um, and uh, gradually filter it off the balance sheet without putting it through the market. Um, so uh, sort of a capitalization in kind of a domestic sovereign wealth fund um, is the most likely outcome. And then the dissolution of the shareholdings would be offset 
largely by share buybacks by the issuing companies. Um, that's the picture that people have drawn for themselves. I think that's a fairly convincing um, possibility for the official response to that. As far as the BOJ changing its uh, stance is concerned, going back to what I was saying in, my, in conversation with George, um, we should be careful what we wish for. Uh, the Bank of Japan has a perfect record of tightening at the top of the global cycle. Um, so if you can tell me when the global cycle is going to peak, I can tell you when the Bank of Japan is going to tighten. That is the slight, slightly uh, cynical way of looking at it. Um, my guess is that they tighten much later than uh, anybody thinks. And the reasons for that are political. Um, the Bank of Japan Secretariat, that is the permanent staff of the bank, supported by armies of, of economists, um, is um, convinced that they should have tightened last year. Um, but they're always convinced that they should have tightened last year. Um, so that's, that's not, not, not new. Um, but the Secretariat has its preferred candidates for the successor to Mr. Kuroda. Um, Mr. Homma, who used to run the Bank of Japan office, you may remember in New York, is uh, one of the front runners. Uh, but there are others. Uh, died in the world, BOJ people. And for them, it's a, uh, a strategic endeavor to make, make sure that the next BOJ governor comes from the BOJ and not from the Ministry of Finance, like Mr. Ureda. Um To settle that battle, though, over the succession to Mr. Kuroda is going to take until early next year, not this year, I think, premature this year. And to have a rate increase would be to prejudge this year, would be to prejudge the outcome of that battle. So I, I'm assuming that battling between the factions um, continues until Mr. Kuroda's um, term ends um, and that the change in policy only comes under a new governor. Thanks for that, Alex. Good question, Phoenix. Um, okay, let's go to SRS Rocco report. Floor is yours. Please unmute yourself, SRS. Thanks, George. Uh, hello, Alexander. This is Steve, and I, I do appreciate your insight of the Japanese market. I, I had one question. We're, we've seen much higher uh, natural gas prices, LNG prices hit Europe, and now also in Japan. Japan is the second largest importer of uh, LNG in, in Asia. And I know some of these are longer contracts. The price might be lower. But have you seen uh, the impact of, of higher energy prices? Because you say that Japan basically imports uh, food and energy raw materials. Uh, are you seeing any impact on higher energy prices on the Japanese businesses and the economy? Not at the moment. Companies are aware that a price rise, rising prices are coming, have come to the international market and are going to come into Japan in due course. Uh, but the structure, particularly of natural gas, the structure of the natural gas importation market, non-market in Japan, um, it protects Japan for a very considerable period against rising prices. If we go back to when natural gas in America was $2 or $3 a um, a puff, uh, a unit. Um, Japan, the average price of the same unit being landed in Japan was $19. Because the Japan price, uh, 
includes liquefaction, sorry, uh, gasification, liquefaction, um, transport, insurance, and all the rest of it. So Japan has continued to pay, um, even when gas was cheap, fourteen to nineteen dollars, um, and it's a big national national project, ICTIS in Australia. And the ICTIS gas field will come on at thirteen dollars. Uh, has come on at thirteen dollars. I'm sorry. Um, so there's significant protection in the structure of the deals that they've done um, to uh, against the very sharp rise in LNG prices alone. Uh, the other factor of importance in energy, of course, is nuclear. Um, and very quietly, nuclear is being reopened. Um, we'll probably get to a position where one-fifth of installed capacity is running normally uh, by the end of the year. Alexander, on that last point on nuclear, I think that's a very uh, timely uh, subject, given that um, I think the ESG movement's on its back foot right now. There's a lot of rethinking going around. Mm. I think the tide has turned. Um, and Japan being at the forefront of uh, the nuclear issue with Fukushima and the whole bit. Could you just uh, maybe just review for us um, sort of attitudes of the tip of Mrs. Watanabe towards nuclear, you know, in the wake of Fukushima and now how are attitudes changing? Because I think that may be instructive for the rest of the world. Yes, it's, um, it's one of the most divisive issues in po politics in, in, in Japan uh, with... Um, heavyweight figures on both sides of the question. Um, up until Fukushima, uh, the population, tend, tend, insofar as one can generalize, uh, tended to um, take it on trust that things were being properly looked after um, and that not only was uh, nuclear a safe choice, but it was also a cheap choice. Uh, what's become obvious after Fukushima is that not only is there a significant level of safety risk um, associated with um, with nu nuclear, uh, one that's particularly keenly felt in the country of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, the, but also uh, the representation that the government embarked upon, that it was a cheap choice, was in fact a lie. Uh, and th this is the, the, the problem in restarting and anything to do expansion of nuclear is not that there are there is a clear majority of Japanese who are opposed a priori to nuclear power but there's um, probably something close to a majority who are very disturbed by the fact that the government basically lied to them um, and uh, that raises questions as to whether it can be trusted in the future so uh, our guess is that we've changed accounting uh, about a fifth of total capacity is clearly, uh, because it's new, newer, is clearly um, uh, economically competitive. But uh, you would have to have oil prices at $200, $250 a barrel um, in order to refloat more than half of Japanese um, nuclear capacity. So we think it's going to make a contribution, a limited contribution, but still an important one, um, given the fact that there's such a squeeze in other departments of the energy complex. 
as long as you're talking about things political, um, anything to be said uh, of significance about the assassination of uh, Shinzo Abe? Um, are there any, mm-hmm. Is there any deeper meaning from that? And what has the attitude been of sort of Mrs. Watanabe towards this? Um, horror was the prime reaction of our Japanese friends. Um, the uh, the assassination of prime ministers used to be bread and butter of Japanese politics in the pre-war pre-war period. So whatever the reasons for the fellow going crazy and shooting um, former prime minister Abe, it uh, it rings bells that nobody wants to hear um, in 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 Japan. Uh, as far as the deeper story is concerned, it doesn't appear to be one. Um, the uh, apparent story is that um, he he was irrationally upset with the former prime minister because the former prime minister had been uh, identified with the Unification Church, um, and uh, uh, he, the Unification Church had ripped off his mother to the tune of twenty million yen, yeah. about one hundred eighty thousand um, dollars. So. Uh, it seems to be a personal, personal grudge, um, but it serves uh, as usual to as all p- political scandals do, to right. um, highlight how murky the financing of Japanese right. politics actually is. Right. Again, we're speaking with Alex Kim. Alex, you've been really generous with your time. Maybe we'll go for another ten minutes, and we'll call it a day. Okay. Um, switching gears completely, let's going back to markets because everyone in here. Uh, is interested in markets and um, you know clearly the important role that Japan plays. Um, and without getting too granular, I don't want to get into specific names. It's not what we tend to do in these rooms. But maybe sectorally, um, you know, what interests you? Or when you look at what you're invested in, it tend to be sort of idiosyncratic. It's individual stories. Or can we deduce any sort of macro or thematic or industry conclusions from how you're invested? Uh, so, for instance, uh, take technology. I remember back in the day, um, always looking at the Japanese tech companies because they would tend to be more uh, talkative about what was going on and, and using inputs from them as a read across for U.S. technology companies. It would sort of give you a leg up. Um, so, I don't any insights you'd want to offer sector, industry, country, and what advice would you give uh, to the average investor in this room? It sounds like Japan might not be a bad place to invest in the years to come. So I don't know, any, any sort of broader investment thoughts about how to deploy capital right now? Um, who, who was it who said, I hit them where they ain't? Um, we, Willie, we, Willie Keeler. It's one of my go-to signature lines. Yeah. He played for the Baltimore Orioles in the early 20th century. Exactly. Yep. That's right. So the first, um, principle of, Investing in troubled times, it seems to me, is hitting them where they ain't. Um, so, to give you an e- e- example, we have uh, um, we've been harvesting positions in uh, oil and natural gas. Um, and for instance, we owned a position in the biggest natural gas hub for the west for the east of Japan, and we owned a position in uh, the big, biggest oil um, exploration company in Japan. Um, but th- those were positions that we accumulated at dramatically lower prices when nobody was interested, and now everybody's interested. We're letting the market have some paper. Um, 
So that's one uh, example. Areas which we think are interesting in Japan um, may provide some pointers for other places as well. Uh, Japan uh, is, is obviously the poster child for so-called demographic decline. Um, we, we tend to take the view that demographic decline is overstated at the macro level. But uh, at the micro level, um, what people forget is it's not just the population that gets older, it's the infrastructure as well. Uh, we have our largest single grouping of positions is in um, companies that do repair and maintenance on the physical infrastructure of, of, of Japan. Uh, given the cycle of development of Japan and other countries, for instance, Italy and so on, uh, one would assume that the same dynamics would be at work in other places. Um, and we've had, uh, as far as demographics are concerned, we've had some positions in uh, companies serving the ageing market, um, for instance, old age people's homes. But generally speaking, we've had disappointing results. Um, so it's there's a gap between the theory of ageing and the actuality of ageing, it seems, seems to me. Uh, as, as far as um, other areas of the world are concerned, uh, I think the UK smaller company sector is interesting. Um, some very cheap stocks there and some places in continental Europe as well um, have very cheap manufacturing stocks uh, the broadest of broad brush levels uh, I would argue that it's going to be the era of manufacturing not technology from now on um, we're going into a, a new uh, period of, of uh, expansion of standard manufacturing uh, in developed countries that correct the uh, misallocation of capital to emerging markets. It's been the feature of the last 10 years, um, arguably over the last 30 years. So what, what's happened in my, my analysis over the last 30 years is that the worker in developed countries has got the short end of the stick because his job has been moved to China. And that's reached the limits of its political viability. So from now on, the jobs will have to be created in the Western societies that have lost them until now. And that, generally speaking, means bringing manufacturing home. So I, uh, I'm very much convinced that China will be damaged by the trends that we see in the world today. Thanks for that. By the way, Alex, before I go on to the next question... Uh... It's a rather sad moment. You wouldn't have seen this because you've been speaking um, very kind with your remarks. Uh, but um, a former client of yours and casual friend of mine, uh, Julian Robertson, he was just announcing uh -huh. that, but he passed away at the age of 90. I know, Tommy, you, you tweeted that out. But, Alex, I'm sure, um, I'm, I'm certain, I know you had dealings with Julian back in the day. Um, and He was. He took uh, me on his private chat. <laughs> could you talk to maybe just a minute or two about julian either what it was like being on his jet or his famous shorting of japanese bank stocks or just maybe give us a couple of just some some your favorite stories or some color commentary on julian because he's truly one of the all-time greats the thing that struck me about julian was his politeness 
um, the, the uh, in a business where it's very easy to find people who um, casually disobliging about other people. Never had a bad word for anyone, um, and he uh, uh, always treated um, me, uh, though I was much much younger and uh, completely inexperienced and utterly useless, uh, with um, with great kindness. So I'm very, very sad to hear, hear, hear the news. As far as in, investing is concerned, um, his short on Japanese banks is one of the all-time great uh, short positions. Um, and the, it was so large that the P&L was hundreds of millions of dollars a day, uh, which in those days was quite a lot of money. Um, and the, so it combined with an exterior politeness he had uh, uh, a very um, fine focus on what was really important. Um, and he, he also made a huge amount of money out of um, long, going long JGBs at the same time. Um, so Japan was a market that he liked and he visited a lot. Um, and I always in, enjoyed meeting him. Yeah, he was a real fine, genteel um, southerner, class act. Uh, class act, absolutely. Yeah. He, 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 what he, he did was he had the ability to keep things simple. He, he, why, why are we short Japanese banks? Because they're bust. Why are we long JGBs? Because the economy is going to implode. Um, and overthinking things is, uh, as you know, the enemy of investment success very often. Well, keeping it simple, um, and I have an infinite ability to overly complicate things, um, will the Widowmaker trade finally pay dividends any ever in our investment lifetimes? And for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, that is shorting, shorting JGBs, what would you say to a newbie who hasn't um, uh, had his right of passage of having gotten uh, destroyed by shorting JGBs? Would you just, is it just, you know, like the opposite of the Nike commercials, just don't do it? Or do you think we're finally coming up, coming up on a time where yeah. that, tra that trade may actually work? I, I would... Um, it's a variation on the theme of keep it simple. Mm. The, the JGB is not going to fall out of bed because people have lost confidence in the Japanese government. And if you're going to enter the trade on that basis, you probably should stop immediately. Right. On the other hand, the JGB yield will correct upwards to a more usual level when net investment restarts. So if you're convinced that net investment is going to restart for whatever reason, then you should go short of JGBs. Got it. That's great. So Alex, do you, if people are more interested, I mean, you're here to be very kind with your time and, and it's been a fantastic discussion about Japan, the world. Um, but if, and, and I know you're not here promoting your company, but if people are interested in learning more about milestone asset management, um, is there a website or anywhere they could, or should, how can they find out more about what you do? There's a website and they can contact us through the website and, and we'll, uh, and is that, is that, is that, is that milestone? Like, do you know, just the URL, like a tweet. M-A-M-J.com. M-A-M-J.com. And do you, or do you offer, I don't know, funds or whatever that individual investors could invest in? I'm told by our lawyers to be extremely careful about saying anything along those lines. 
We, okay, we let, have... let, let, let me rephrase the question. Rephrase the question. I have a friend who's interested in investing in small Japanese companies. Would it be a waste of time for him to contact you? If if he is not neither a company nor a an institution, yes, because we're not allowed to to manage money for individual investors. I see. Is that just in the U.S. or in Europe or everywhere? Is it? Is it? It's, it's, it's a Japanese regulation. Japanese regulation. Okay, so I got it. We're, we're licensed in Japan. I got it. You don't. You don't offer any uh, usits or mutual funds or any of that. You sort have of usits. Yes. You have usits in Europe. Okay, fine. That's fair enough. All right. Well, this has been fantastic, uh, Alexander. I really want to thank you. And um, again, it's mamj.com for anyone's uh, who's interested. Alexander, I know I've learned a lot. It it really. It's very poignant listening to you. It takes takes me back to years past, and um, you know it's different, but it's the same. Uh, and I hope you've enjoyed yourself, and you'll consider coming back because um, you know they're just so. It's really insightful, insightful to hear your perspective on things, and it's been fantastic. So I want to thank you, Alexander. It's been awesome, and um, look forward to speaking with you again in the future. So thank you, Alexander. George, it reminded me of. First time I speak as a Morgan Stanley strategist. And Barton Biggs introduced me with the immortal line, Alex is our new strategist. Strategists are like diapers. You change them often and for the same reason. <laughs> well said. All right. Take care, Alexander. Be well. On that note, goodbye, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.